We're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 3, but before we do, we'll pray for the Lord's blessings on His Word. Father, we do ask that for Jesus' sake, that Your Spirit would be at work in us in the receiving of Your Word, uh, that it would always be a reminder to us, those who proclaim Your Word, that we're nothing. And what's important is Christ and, and Him crucified, Him exalted, and the gospel to be preached, and that we are to receive it, Lord, and with the same mindset that we would seek to give glory to Him along with You in the Spirit, so that we might find our boasting not in ourselves, but in You alone. May You accept our prayers that these things may occur now and forevermore in the lives of Your people for the sake of Jesus. Amen. We looked at 1 Corinthians 3 tonight. We, If you're visiting, we are been doing a series out of the of sermons out of 1 Corinthians, and we are up to the third chapter. We're going to read the 23 verses there as we consider our message tonight, moving to Christian maturity as God's field and as God's temple. We sang about how the nations would come together in Zion and Ultimately, in Jesus Christ here, we hear about divisions in the church and what needs to happen to minimize those divisions and jealousies and polarities. Uh, it's part of the longer instruction, of course, that the Apostle is giving to the Corinthian church and really to the church of Jesus Christ as a whole. So, we're going to read those 23 verses of 1 Corinthians 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, Infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready. For you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? But when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. So the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. The work that anyone has built on the foundation survives. He will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 
if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, it is written he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in man. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours. You are Christ's, and Christ is God. We thank the Lord for this portion of his word this evening and be a blessing to us today. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if we get to know certain individuals, we may find as we get to know those people that they may look at a situation uh, typically in one way or the other. They may be the kind of people that we say who either see the glass half full or they see the glass half empty. They see it more optimistically or they see it more pessimistically. Even though it's the very same situation that the, that the two different people are looking at. Uh, and and that, can, that can happen when we, we can observe that with some, some people sometimes. That they, they tend to look at that very same situation in a different manner, even though it's the same situation. When we're thinking about <clears throat> the matter of sin, uh, if we needed to define it, we could say, well, uh, sin is is in the realm of evil. We, we would say it's a disobedience to God. We would say that sin is, is when we do something wrong against somebody that's not in accordance with God's word uh, and that we act against the good. And, and then you, when you think about sin like that, then you say to yourself, well, then why would anybody want to look at sin any differently? Why would anybody want to fall into that? But when temptation comes our way and we fall into it, in a way, we kind of see a, a, a little bit of a parallel anyway between the people who see the same situation but look at it differently. When, when we fall into temptation, when we sin, we sin because we don't see that sin as heinous as it may be. We don't see it as bad. It looks like it'll work to our best advantage. Like the wise way. Not the foolish. Because if we didn't look at it that way, well, then why would we commit sin? Why do we fall into temptation then? Satan comes like an angel of light, the voice of reason, the, the one that's looking out for our best. And that's why people steal and, and blaspheme God and rebel against their parents and take vengeance and kill and covet and all the rest when we sin. Even though it's, it's something that's evil, when we fall into temptation, we tend to look at it just the opposite way. In our passage tonight, the, the Apostle Paul speaks of sin as the wisdom of the world. It's the wisdom of the world, not just because it derives from the world, but because the wisdom of the world looks wise. That's why the church in Corinth was having trouble. The irony of it all is that while they fought, 
their worldly wisdom was doing them favors and making them somebody, the apostle sees what they don't see. Instead of being mature, like they probably thought they were, indeed, uh, they were infantile. Though they would have liked to consider themselves as, as spiritual and, and pious, even super spiritual, they were showing themselves to be carnal and irreverent. So what was the problem? Well, it doesn't seem that they were having trouble with intelligence, not with all the talk about wisdom. And they didn't seem to have trouble with zeal, not with all the talk that they had of being dedicated or belonging to this apostle or that apostle. No, their infantilism is, had more to do with a lack of love, a lack of understanding of the elementary truths of the Christian faith. And so instead of growing and building on that faith, their growth was stunted by the wisdom of the world. And it showed. It showed, as the passage reminds us, in jealousy and division, strife and pride. What they needed was a different perspective that moved from taking joy and pride in the boasting of men and the boasting of belonging to men to taking joy and, and pride in belonging to Christ alone. When we belong to Him, the Apostle concludes, all things belong to us. That's the Gospel of Christ. And that Gospel is the key to growth in Christian maturity and harmony. Our passage is about moving in Christian maturity as God's field and as God's temple. And we want to focus first here on God's field because that's what the passage does. They said, it says, you're God's field. The people of Corinth might have thought Paul's ministry could have been a bit meatier to them. Given the way that Paul introduces those very first verses of our chapter. Uh, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I, I fed you milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for it, and even now you're not ready. These people were new in the faith. And unfortunately, they were showing it. Even now, he says, I'm going to be quite elementary with you. And if you think about that, you know, when you look at 1 Corinthians, you say, well, as I look at this, this, this letter, it's long and, it, and, it, and it, it seems rather challenging at times. And we get that. I understand. We understand that. But, but yet for Paul, what he is saying is in many respects quite basic to the faith. He says, I, you know, later on he's going to say in chapter 15 that I, I, I brought you Christ and him crucified. And this is what is, of, well, he says that even earlier now. But later he's going to talk about what's of first importance. And that is of Christ being crucified and Christ being resurrected. He speaks about crucifixion, resurrection. He speaks about the sacraments. He speaks about love. You know that in 1 Corinthians 13. He speaks about how people need to act morally. Uh, and how they need to treat each other considerately in the church. And that was enough for these people, and that's really plenty for the church to consider anyway. 
they also needed to hear the basics as to whom to whom they belong, who they were, who the church leaders were, who Christ was. And that all gets picked up in this chapter. But the Corinthians, as we've seen, for them, what was important, at least for some of them, was that they were belonging to a particular church leader. Perhaps that was translated, as we talked about before, maybe in a bit of racial superiority, academic superiority, but definitely a false superiority, given the fact that as that that as Paul reiterates in this chapter, all church leaders worked for the same side. They were one, he said. They were in the same field. They were in the same building of the same master. And that false superiority, you see, was causing division and strife and jealousy. Their immaturity then wasn't that they weren't smart, or, or that they weren't passionate or zealous. But that they weren't being wise. They weren't being loving. They weren't being obedient. Now some divisions are legitimate. We understand that. Between the false and the true. Paul shows that those at Corinth, though, uh, their particular divisions were not legitimate. While leaders like Paul and Apollos, for instance, did different tasks, the one planted and the other watered, they were one in purpose. Because they worked for the one God in the one field, which was the church, Jesus Christ. And whatever people thought of the workers, what was growing in that field was growing in faith primarily because of the grace of God. One could say solely because of the grace of God, not because of the worker. Now, Paul's not going to say that there's no reward in store for those who are working in God's field. There will be, as our passage mentions that, not because of their successes, though, but because of their labor, not because of their results, but because of their faithfulness. After all, what has Paul said about the results of the work of grace? God gave the increase. And it's a lesson for church leaders, for prospective church leaders, and particularly to ministers of the Word. On the one hand, there's a, there's a call to diligence, but the diligence should be motivated by the grace of God that you know and the grace of God proclaimed. We're not to be diligent based on how people are going to respond to us, because that varies, doesn't it? As a church leader, you need to be diligent simply because you're working for the Master, the God of grace. Your diligence will not be forgotten by the Master of the field. And it's not because, first of all, scads of people come to your beck and call, but because you're faithful in proclaiming the wonders of God and not your own wonders, and not your own charisma. People who seek to lead God's people for the wrong reasons, to show everybody how slick they are, or clever they are, or how smart they are, well, they've got their reward. People who seek to lead God's church to see how much money they can make, or, or how famous they'll become, and how many people that they can draw to themselves, well, they, they have their reward. 
But it's a reward that doesn't compare to the reward of the Lord who remembers his faithful servant. Which is what he is. He's not a celebrity. He's not a star. He's a servant, he said. Who is Paul? Who is, Paul? Who is Apollo? A servant. Servants of the Lord and of his people. And he even says, they're nothing. They're nothing. When Paul reminds us of how God gives the increase, it's a reminder to us all that what needs to be important to us is not how wonderful we think the church leader is, but how wonderful the Savior and the God of grace is, whom the church leader is proclaiming. We need to be praying that whatever it is that's, that, that is called, that, that the minister is doing, or that the servant of the Lord is doing, or that the leader is doing, that when they're called to proclaim the word of the Lord, that's what they're doing. And that's what they want to do. That's what we need to be praying for. Because it's, it's that proclaiming that God is going to use to help us, help others grow in His way. And since it's God who gives the increase, we need to be praying, praying for God's grace to be at work in the lives of all those who hear the Word of God. We need to pray that more and more people will come to grow in the Word of grace and come to know the Word of grace. Because the church of Jesus Christ grows not because of how great the faithful minister is or how great the seeds think they are. The church grows because of how great the grace of God is in Christ. And the more that we all appreciate that, right? The more that we all appreciate the, the greatness of the grace of God, the more the, the humbler we'll all become. And uh, you know, our heads will fit through the door. Because we'll remember how much we all have in common thanks only to the grace of God. And in the process, we'll, we'll bond to ourselves all the more. And the jealousies and the divisions and the, the striving decrease. That's the movement to maturity that Paul the Apostle of Jesus wants to see. That's what we ought to want to see right, in our own lives and and whether we're leaders or members or whatever it might be. But Paul underscores that desire that he has, this uh, Christian maturity that he wants to see, by using another metaphor for the church. He says, you're God's field, but you're also, he says, God's building, or God's temple, or God's house. And he says the foundation of that house is Jesus Christ, and that that's of first importance, that's basic. So, no Christ, no church. No Christ, no reason for boasting. For the only boasting that is deserving is the boast of Christ. Paul proclaimed Christ the Savior of sin, and he proclaimed him as risen from the dead. And whatever gets built on that truth, though, says Paul, needs to be built with truth. The truth of the gospel, God's words and ways. Now, some people are See, what's discussed here is, is what we as individuals build on the original profession that we make. But Paul's temple's focus speaks of them who have built after he has built as a minister of the gospel. So Paul's building talk is directed to church leaders, particularly pastors and teachers, that their wisdom is going to be of the world, which some were giving at people at Corinth, and then 
that kind of wisdom wasn't going to stand in the end. It would be the equivalent of hay and wood and stubble. Now, you might use that in a common home in those days, but you wouldn't use that in a temple. A temple needs to be built with gold and silver and precious stones. And Paul here speaks about then three different kinds of leaders. One kind starts with the right foundation of Jesus Christ and builds with precious stones. And that would be the kind of person who would stay faithful to the Word of God in, in all other areas. And, and their teaching would build the church and stand the test of time. Another kind of church leader accepts the foundation of Jesus Christ but builds the wisdom of the world on it. The people of Corinth were getting some of that building kind of going on. Not only when it came to their pride and factions, but also in other matters to which Paul must attend in this letter, like marriage and lawsuits and morality. Such teachings wouldn't uh, build the church, and such leaders would find themselves facing consequences for their actions, though they would be saved because the foundation on which they stood, which was Christ. But then you got the third leader would be the kind that set out to just knock the foundation of Jesus Christ right out uh, from under God's temple. And, and he speaks about those kind of people. Don't you know that you're God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anybody destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. That's what some of the people were getting as well. Uh, that such a leader, God shows no mercy. Such an act, action would be sacrilege, profaning church, God's church, God's temple. But this portion of the chapter is it's meant to be a, a vivid reminder again to, to both sides of the pulpit, you might say. The church is, is first of all, not something built by the hands of men. It, it's God's holy place. What we receive in, in, in ministry as members does matter. We can find ourselves in the modern church receiving silver and gold, wood and stubble, or, or people who are coming at us with spiritual bulldozers who seek to knock God's church off its mooring. And as much as we recognize that churches or church leaders are nothing, you know, in comparison to the grace of God, it's also important that, that what they build with is, is fitting for the precious building that the church of Jesus Christ is. If we're not hearing the word preached and applied in our churches, then that's not going to be to our upbuilding. And it becomes a disgrace to God. He's not going to allow his church to be dishonored in the long run. But then from the other side of, a, of the pulpit, it's a warning also to build faithfully and with the precious stones of God's truth rather than with the folly of worldly wisdom. There's a temptation to want to build that way, of course. Pulpits are not meant to be places where the perspective of the world is to be proclaimed, but rather the perspective of Christ. And it's not to be the building of church celebrities, but the magnifying of the name of Jesus Christ to the blessing of God's people. Paul's application of this is made in our passage. He says, therefore, no more boasting about men. 
Because you don't belong to men who lead. You belong, they belong to you. You don't belong to them. They belong to you. That's what he, he mentions here, doesn't he? <clears throat> no, no more boasting about men. Because all things are yours. Paul or Apollos or Cephas. Well, they were saying, well, I belong to Paul. I belong to Cephas. I belong to Apollos. No, 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 no. They belong to you. Quit boasting about the wrong people. You don't belong to Apollos. You don't belong to uh, this guy on the radio and that guy on the podcast. You belong to Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about you belonging to church leaders or life or death or things present, or things to come. You, you catch what that, what's going on there. You don't belong to men who lead. They belong to you as servants. All things belong to you because you belong to Christ. You know, what do we say? What's my only comfort in life and in death? We don't say, well, it's because I belong to, to this long-standing famous guy or that long-standing famous guy. No. You belong to Christ. And so you need to see things the way they really are, believers, so says Paul. Because it's not about you belonging to church leaders or life or death or things present or things to come. The very things that could enslave you are yours. Because you belong to Christ. It's a tremendously remarkable statement. It reminds us of Romans 8, where all things work together for those who love God. That nothing can separate you from the love of God when you're in Christ Jesus. Not life, not death, not the present, not tomorrow, not next week, not next year. Nothing. They all belong to you. The apostles are there to serve you. Those who live and those who die live and die under the benevolent rule of Jesus Christ to whom you belong. Whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. You see what that's, you see what that's saying? Because the world's wisdom makes it out like, you know, you're just kind of going along for the ride and you're, on the, uh, you're, you're running on the, you know, the hovercraft of faith. And everything's out of control for you. And you're enslaved to chance and fate and the whims of chance. Oh, that's a terrible way to live. No, what the Apostle's saying here is, you know, no matter what occurs in life or death, whatever happens tomorrow, whatever happens next week, whether you're living, whether you're dying, I mean, it's totally encompassing. In God's marvelous design in Christ, they serve you. It's not the other way around. And why is that? Well, it's the only way it can be. It's when you belong to Christ. 
You are not believers in Christ. You are not pawns in the hands of time. It's remarkable. Time works as a pawn for you. Because you belong to Christ. That's good news. When you think everything is out of control, or maybe out of control of your life, or out of your hands, that's liberating. My freedom, my joy, is that I'm heir to everything. And everything works for my good in the end. Not because I belong to myself, not because I belong to Apollos or whoever, but because I belong to Christ. No more boasting about belonging to people then. No more boasting about oneself and belonging to one's own ship as the master of one's own ship. My boast then is that I'm the Lord. Just as Christ subjects himself to his Father and does so joyously so that Christ is of God, so also must we subject ourselves to Christ, our Lord and Savior, rejoice in him, find our union with him, find our pride in him, and find that when we belong to him, everything is ours. When that's where our pride is, when that's where we find our glory, and when that's where we find, we all find our glory, then the jealousy stops, and the striving ends, and, and the turmoil cools, and we move in the direction of Christian maturity to which God calls us by his gospel in Jesus Christ. May that be where we all find ourselves moving today for the sake of the gospel, which tells us that when we're believers in Christ, then we belong to Christ. And because we do, there's nothing to be jealous about. Because in Christ, all things belong to us. Amen. Let's, let's pray, shall we? Father, we are grateful for your gospel again tonight. Remarkable as it is for us, may we find ourselves believing it. To know that we're not, when we're in Christ, we belong to Him. We we have everything, and we're not pawns of fate or time or chance. We're under the sovereignty plans of our great Savior and King. And instead of jockeying and being polarized because we're boasting in people or mere mortals. May we find ourselves again soothing and minimizing those jealousies and divisions because what matters the most is that we all belong to Christ and we all rejoice in your grace to us in Him so that we'd be tighter together and we'd be more mature in the faith to which you've called us in Jesus. So, And if, Lord, we haven't taken advantage of repenting and believing in this Jesus from a very important perspective. Why wouldn't we? Because 
in Him, we have all things when we belong to Him. Thank you for that good news, and we pray that you'd hear us in Jesus' name. Amen. 426 is our...